0: the greatest surprise you've ever experienced. I mean, a time when you were just absolutely blown away, completely unexpecting what's getting ready to take place, and all of a sudden, just wham. I mean, it just it just came upon you. I thought about the answer to that question, and I would say mine was probably whenever Tracy told me that she was having twins. Um, it was her second pregnancy, and I was hanging out in the waiting room while she had an appointment, like a good husband, and she came out with a piece of paper in her hand. She'd been having some, uh, some, some pain, I mean, not anything major, but, hey, maybe we ought to get this checked out, and she called the OBGYN, and he said, yeah, sure, come on in, and. And so I'm waiting there, and she's she's in the back, and she comes out with this piece of paper in her hand, and I find out later it's an ultrasound print, and um, you know, I don't remember the look on her face, but I remember what I asked her. You know, is everything okay? And she said uh, yes. Well, what did he say? And she hands me this piece of paper, which is a picture. And when I looked at it, I saw it was an ultrasound. And, you know, whenever it's early on, you know, you kind of see the circle there. But, you know, it was the black and white. And and as I look at the picture, I see these two little letters, A and B. And I say to her, what does the A and B mean? And she says, that's baby A and baby B. And I, I just, I just didn't know what to say. I mean, it just, it really, you know, I'm replaying this in my mind and I'm looking, just staring at this picture. And, and, and honestly, it never crossed my mind before, before that day that twins were possible. You know, they don't run in the family. I didn't have a dream. I mean, I just, it just never, ever, ever crossed my mind. I was not expecting that at least. Obviously it was a it was a good surprise. And that might be a good way to describe what what happened to the sons of Jacob in our passage today. They were blindsided. If you asked them what was their greatest surprise, i would I would guess they would, they would answer what we're going to to read today. Like my situation, they were completely unprepared. They had no idea it was coming. And Joseph, when he reveals himself to his brothers, they were so shocked that it leaves them speechless, literally. I mean, he has to tenderly speak to them and invite them to come closer. Re- watch my mouth. Look at my facial features. It's, it's really me. And while it was very emotional for Joseph and stunning to the brothers, the real story of Genesis chapter 45 is how God never leaves us alone and how revelation can lead to restoration of relationships. Um, And that's needed. It's remarkably hopeful. I mean, this is a passage that is filled with tension, and it's also filled with with hope. And there is revelation upon revelation upon revelation in this chapter, and every single time those those revelations lead to a restoration of a relationship. Restoration of a relationship between Joseph and his brothers, between the brothers and their father, and ultimately between Jacob and, and his God. If you're not there, open to Genesis chapter 45. Clay has already read the passage for us, so I'm not going to read it again. But I do want to show you how... Just do a quick flyover. Genesis chapter 45, if if you're reading it, it has four sections. And remember when we're reading a narrative, we're looking for the page turners. We're looking for it to move from one scene to another, one one scene in the play to the next scene in the play. There are four scenes in, in chapter 45. You have Joseph revealing himself to his brothers, beginning in verse 1, and that goes through verse, verse 8. Um, you have Joseph's instruction concerning their brother's return to Canaan, beginning in verse 9. He says, hurry up and go up to my father. And that runs through verse 15 so Joseph revealing himself and and talking to his brothers. And then he he tells them, here's the plan. You're going back to dad and you're going to tell him what you've done. (laughs) And here's how you're going to go. And then in verse 16, you have the, the next scene, which is now the report was heard in Pharaoh's house. So now you have Pharaoh learning who Joseph is. Pharaoh gets a revelation in this chapter. He learns who Joseph is, who these guys are that have been coming back and forth. And he blesses the plan, which will be very important uh, whenever we come to the life of, of the nation of Israel later. And then that goes to verse 24. And then in verse 25 through 28, those last three verses, you have them reappearing in Canaan. Then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their, their father. So there's the four scenes. In, in Joseph's presence, the plan that Joseph gives them about the return. Then he goes over to Pharaoh's house and Pharaoh gives his blessing to Jacob and the, the family moving down. And then you go back to Canaan and you see the brothers show up with the news before Jacob. We're going to focus on the reconciliation part next time, and this morning we're just going to look at the, at the three revelations that actually set that reconciliation up. There are three revelations in this chapter that we're, going to, that we're going to look at. Three revelations that lead to reconciliation. And the first one is Joseph revealing himself. Number one is Joseph revealing himself. Look at verse, verse 1. It says, Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all who, who stood by him. And he cries out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his, his brothers. Now this chapter begins with a very dramatic scene. It it. it begins with a dramatic scene it 's actually a carryover from chapter forty four as the brothers pass as we saw last week, as they pass uh, uh, joseph 's final exam and he recognizes there 's a full transformation that 's taken place, and the, the the capstone to that transformation is Judah interceding as the substitute on behalf of Benjamin Joseph here this chapter forty five opens with with Joseph realizing his brothers are not the same men, and he, he can't maintain his secrecy before this is not the first time that Joseph has has been emotional. You remember he's excused himself more than once and wept, got himself together, and he comes back in. But here he he can't control himself. He he's unable to contain his his emotions, and and he shouts, "Everybody get get away from me, except his brothers." and and with that, I mean, the second in command of all of Egypt sends all of the, the Egyptian servants scurrying. And the only ones in the room that are left is Joseph weeping and, and his brothers. Can you imagine what's going through the, the brother's mind? Because he, he hasn't told them what's going on yet. I mean, they're thinking, what in the world is getting ready to happen? They've already had a few surprises with the exams. He doesn't want anyone there when he reveals himself to his his brothers. But verse 2 says that he wept aloud. He wept so loud. He he sobbed so loud that not only did did the Egyptians that's uh, that's uh, Joseph's servants that he dismissed, not only did his own servants hear, but the house of Pharaoh heard. I mean, this is a second in command. So it's like, you know, president's house, vice president's house, very close together. So, I mean, he weeps so loud that not only do the servants that he just mishear it, but also Pharaoh in his own quarters hears it. This is a man who has 20 years of emotion built up and it all comes out at once. You ever tried really, really hard to restrain your emotions? We were talking about this with Jacob right before the wedding yesterday morning about you know crying or breaking down and and about how hard it is sometimes as a pastor at a funeral I told you before when I go to a military funeral whenever I, uh, I you know there's some kind of honor that's delivered there it's really really hard for me to keep it together and so you know you bite the inside of your jaw or your lip or whatever you have to do to keep it together because you're there ministering serving here's a guy for 20 years He's kept it together. He's he's let it out a couple times and regained it. And in, in here's 20 years of emotion that all comes out at once. There's a scene in uh, the movie Gods and Generals when Stonewall Jackson, who was known for his resolute personality, hears about fever taking a little girl that he's become fond of. If you've seen the movie, it's... It's somewhere towards the, towards the end of it. And he sends his personal physician to care for her, and, and upon his return, the physician relates the news to Jackson that, that she's died. And upon hearing the news, the normally stoic Jackson walks off and takes two a steps, few steps away from his troops, and he, and he sits down and he just breaks down and sobs. And the men are just standing there just just in awe. I mean, they're looking at it. And one of them finally says, I've never seen a general cry. I mean, so many soldiers, even his own from VMI, so many horrible things before. Why now? And another one answers, I think he's crying for them all right now. Here, I think Joseph is crying for the entire 20 years of experience. Yes, it was his brothers and the transformation that triggered it, but, but Joseph has displayed unwavering trust in God. He's displayed perseverance. Well, that doesn't mean he didn't feel anything during the process. I mean, he's not a robot. He felt everything you would have felt when, when something happens that hurts and you can't understand it. I, I'm, I'm sure he felt fear, he felt betrayal, he felt anxious, he felt frustration and much more. He had questions... He missed his father. He missed his family greatly. I think that, that you could really see this, and you can see both the faith of Joseph and the heart of Joseph whenever he names his children. I mean, when kids come into the world, it changes things, doesn't it? It, 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 it changes you. It's a, it's a moment of reflection. You, you go from an individual to now a married individual when you get married, and then when you have a kid, it's like everything everything changes. And in that moment in Joseph's life, he names his children Manasseh, which means forgetful, and Ephraim, which means fruitful. Do you remember what he says? He says, God has made made me forget my trouble and my father's household. That's the reason he names him Manasseh, forgetful. God has made me forget my trouble and my father's household. That's his conclusion and reflection upon having a kid. Ephraim, fruitful. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. He affirms his faith. This is not my land. Canaan is my land. That's the promised land. But God has given me a little respite. He's given me a little joy with this child in the midst of this land of affliction. Here's over a decade, it's plus, 15 years or so, 17 years since since he was taken out of Canaan. He's been exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh. And at the birth of his children, he's still thinking of, of home. He's still thinking of his father. He's still thinking of the, the trouble or the pain. And I think it's very helpful. It should be very helpful for you. It is for me because I think Christians sometimes feel like that, that any feeling like that, whether it's a sense of fear or betrayal or anxiety or whatever it might be, expresses a lack of faith or shows weakness. I see a lot of this at, at funerals. Christians sometimes don't know how to respond at funerals. Is it okay for me to cry because I know there's heaven? You know, I mean, is it okay for me to mourn and feel sad? Of course it is. <laughs> That's exactly what human beings do. It's, it's not a sign of weakness. Feelings are part of being a human being. It's what you do with those feelings that matter. You're going to have them. They're going to come. The question comes, will you follow your feelings or what you know about God? That's really the question. Will you allow how you feel to direct what you do long-term, or will you have faith in what God has said? Joseph had feelings, but he allowed his faith in what God had said to direct him for the long-term. That's what he persevered by, not his feelings. Adrian Rogers said when he gets it, got out of bed in the morning, shared this with you before, I think years ago, he went to pray and didn't feel like praying, had a headache and... It just felt like prayers weren't getting through, and so he said he went and took two Alka-Seltzer. And about thirty minutes later, he was feeling a whole lot better, and went back and had a had a wonderful prayer. And he said, "So let me ask you a question: Was God in those two little Alka-Seltzer? Was I any more on praying ground whenever I felt bad, whenever I felt good?" And he says, "Don't come to God with a your handful of a brass of emotions. Come before God with." a firm conviction of faith in who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what He's done. Your feelings come, but feelings are fleeting. feel one way, one way, one day, and one day the next. Joseph directed his life by faith and not feeling. It's, but the feelings are coming out right now. Joseph felt everything you would have felt, but he trusted in God regardless. Joseph blurts out in verse 3, Three words in English, two in Hebrew, really a pronoun and a proper name. He just simply says, I am Joseph. I mean he's sobbing, crying uncontrollably, and all he can get out is I am Joseph. What? He reveals himself and then he immediately mentions his father. Does my father still live? The significance there is he calls him my father. All the time before, Joseph's been saying, your father. Is your father still alive? What about your brother? Here he calls him, my father. Does my father still live? Remember, this is not a story about Joseph, but it's about Jacob. It's a reason it's mentioned here. Does my father still live? Does the patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, does Israel still live? My father. He hasn't forgotten his family. He still longs to be with them. And while Joseph is emotional, his brothers are emotionless. <laughs> but his brothers, in verse 3, could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. They were unable to speak. They were in complete shock. It doesn't say they didn't answer. It says they could not answer. It's, they're in disbelief. And Joseph trying to help gives them information that only he would know. Look at verse 4. Joseph said to his brothers tenderly, please come near to me. Come closer. It's okay. So they came near and then he said, I am Joseph your brother. He repeats the same phrase and then he gives them information that only Joseph would have known whom you sold into Egypt. Nobody knows that except the brothers. And of course the guy that cut the short end of the stick. Dad may suspect it, but he doesn't know. The Egyptians don't know. And Joseph confirms to them who he is. And with that revelation, their demeanor changes from shock to disbelief to fear. Now... They know who they're standing before. And if you thought they were afraid when they thought they were standing before the second in command of Egypt, now they know the second in command of Egypt is brother that they have sold into slavery. And you just see the transformation taking before their eyes. And with that revelation, we come to the second one where God reveals his purpose. Joseph reveals himself and God reveals his purpose. Verses 4 through through 8. If you would at verse, verse 5. After the revelation of Joseph to his brothers, I think you have one of the most magnificent theological conclusions in all of the Bible. I mean, talk about a good ending. Talk about explaining exactly what's been going on. I mean, there are times in the Bible where you have to guess whether providence was at play, whether, whether God was at work or not. You don't have to guess here. I mean, it is plain as, as day. Verse 5, but now, don't, don't be grieved, don't be, don't be angry, don't, don't be distressed is what he's saying. Don't beat yourself up. Don't be angry with yourself because you sold me here. That's why they would be grieved or angry. I mean, they're, they're afraid. Why is he saying that? For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land, and there's still five years which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to prove, to preserve a posterity for you in the earth to save your life. So it was not you who sent me here, but but God. And he made me father to Pharaoh and the lord of this house and the ruler through all of Egypt. And he covers their sin and he covers his position in Egypt and he tells them not to fear. this is one of the most fascinating passages in all the story of Joseph, if not in the story of of the Bible. As you have in this passage... God's sovereignty affirmed by Joseph and I think more shocking it's applied to the brothers you have you have it affirmed by Joseph and then you have Joseph actually applying it to the to the brothers I mean you get to see Joseph's theology here what keeps him on track for these this 20 year or ordeal and I just say in a sidebar if you want a rock-solid faith that will allow you to persevere like Joseph did, you you better get a hold of Joseph's theology because a a low view of God won't work in Joseph's world. It might work when everything's hunky-dory and there's no problems, but you go through something like Joseph's going through or something like you may be going through right now, if you don't have a firm grasp on who God is and the fact that He's in control, you're going to spin off the page. Joseph explains for his brothers that, that while they're not guiltless and while their nightmare's not, his nightmare is not present, the hand of the Lord was, was in it. You have here a very comprehensive example. It's, a, it's an example of how God's sovereignty and man's freedom relate to each other. Joseph doesn't attempt to alleviate the the tension. He just states the facts. And on the one hand, Joseph attributes the whole situation to to God's sovereign hand. I mean, three times he makes the the statement, God was the one that brought this to pass. Look if you would at verse verse 5. God sent me before you. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7. Same thing. Repeats it, and God sent me before you, in case they missed it the first time, and you can't even get any clearer than verse eight. So it was not you who sent me here, but the God. He's affirming the the Lord's overworking in all of the of the situation and and then even attributes that God was the one, his hand was the one that made him ruler of Egypt. On the other hand, Joseph attributes his brother's actions to their own wills and states they're responsible. Look at verse 4. Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. And then he said, I am Joseph your brother whom God sold into Egypt. Is that what he says? Whom you sold into Egypt. He says the same thing in verse 5. Now therefore do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. Because you sold me here, for God sent me before you. And the brothers here don't get a pass in any way on their actions simply because God used them for His own purposes. He didn't force them to take these actions. He, they did exactly what they intended to do without the least bit of coercion by God. They were guilty. I think verse 5 summarizes the... The twins, twin statements. Look at verse 5. You sold me here, God sent me here. You sold me, God sent me. You looked to take life, God was preserving life. I mean, it's, it's exactly what Joseph puts together. I mean, the, the statement at the end of the book of Genesis... Joseph repeats this same thing in Joseph in Genesis fifty, verse twenty. Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. As for you, you meant meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they're here today. The question. Why would God, or why does God, use sinful men, the actions of sinful human beings to carry out his plans? Well, I could give you a long theological answer, but but I really like the way Vodhi Baccom stated it in his answer when he gets the question Why would God use sinful men to carry out his plans? Bodhi answers he says every time, where's God going to find a sinless man to use? <laughs> There is no sinless man. There's no sinless men. It's true. Romans three twenty three. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, everything that God does, everything that God does in accomplishing anything that involves human beings involves sinful men in some way. Joseph doesn't just affirm those whose twin truths Personally, but he also applies it to to the brothers. You would at at verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth, to keep you alive, he says earlier. God sent me before you to preserve life. And then in verse 6, he explains what he means by that. I'm here because there's the famine and the famine's not over. And there's five more years. And because I'm here, I'm going to preserve your life and the life of the family. He talks about a remnant and the survivor's Save your lives by a great deliverance, he says. means others in Canaan, others in the world will die from the famine, but that's not God's plan for the family of Jacob. And he's using Joseph to accomplish that. He comforts his brothers. Are you ready for this? Who are the perpetrators with the sovereignty of God? Now, that's just weird whenever I started thinking about that. I mean, I totally get how when bad things come into my life, I'm going to go, well, okay, I might not understand it, but God's in control. I get that brings comfort to me. And Joseph affirms that. Whenever I stand and affirm and say, yes, human beings had their part in it, but ultimately God's in control of my, my life. He'll work all things together for good. We love Romans eight twenty. That brings me great comfort whenever difficulty comes in my life. I can affirm that about God. But Joseph applies that same sovereignty of God to his brothers who are the perpetrators. You normally think the comfort is only for the person afflicted, but God applies it here to the offenders. You did this, you sold me, God sent me, and He did it for you. Wow. Did it for you to preserve you, to preserve a remnant, and that you would be a survivor. He never excuses their guilt, but he declares that in the midst of your guilt, God's grace is going to triumph over it. You ever think the Apostle Paul had a hard time with what he did prior to salvation? I mean, I know the Bible says he, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward. You ever think the apostle Paul ever, ever laid down, and in his dreams he ever saw Stephen's face when he was standing there holding his cloak? You ever think that the apostle Paul ever heard the screams of the women and the children that he abused and drug out of their homes and brought to Jerusalem to to lock up? Do you ever have a hard time with what you've done prior to to salvation? You ever think about that? Does it ever bother you? Let me ask you another question. Do you think God used the Apostle Paul's former life, or your former life for that matter, to prepare Paul what he called him to do? God never excused his sin, never excused yours. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 1, because I think this is Apostle Paul's, they should be bringing these verses up on the screen. This is the Apostle Paul's statement about his former life and I think a New Testament application of what, what Joseph is, is saying here. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me into service. That's in the ministry. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, that's sin against God, and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. That's sin against other people. Yet, in spite of that, I was shown mercy because I acted in unbelief, ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners... And I clearly am and was. All of my sin I own. I committed. God didn't excuse one of them. But even though I committed that sin, even though I am foremost of all, He put me into ministry. He put me into service. Verse 16. And here's the reason. Yet for this reason I found mercy. So that in me, that is the foremost, the chiefest, the one who is clearly a sinner, clearly a perpetrator. Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in Him for eternal life. God is never the author of sin. He is never blamed for sinful actions of others. But He can use sin to make grace look awful great, can he? Think about the song Amazing Grace. What makes it amazing? Because you deserve it? What makes it amazing is that it's so undeserved. God makes diamonds out of lumps of, of coal. And he's proven this throughout the story of Genesis. He's proven that grace triumphs over sin and that while human beings make decisions, and they do so freely, that He can ensure that His covenant promise continues along. He's rescued His covenant from the sin of Sodom. Did Sodom get away with their sin? And yet God's covenant didn't fall. He's rescued His covenant from the sin of Sarah. Was Hagar a sinful act by Sarah and Abraham? You better believe it was. But God's covenant promise didn't fail. He's rescued it from the sin of Abraham himself, the patriarch lying and participating with Sarah multiple times. God's rescued it from the physical body, the physical body, menopause even being past, childbirth, a dead womb can't thwart the promises of God. He rescued it from the evil intent of a father-in-law, Laban. He rescued it. From the birth order of twins, betrayed brother, Esau can't thwart. Bad parenting of Jacob can't thwart it. Evil brothers can't thwart it, trying to kill Joseph, selling him into Egypt. Potiphar's wife can't thwart it. Even natural disasters such as famine cannot thwart the promises of God. You know what you should take away from that? You are absolutely indestructible. And God's promises are absolutely unfailing. And that is a platform that you can live your life out on. The third, which I'm not going to be able to go through, but I'll introduce it, begins in verse 9. It's the brothers reveal the truth. Joseph reveals himself. Here are the three revelations. Joseph reveals himself. God reveals his purpose. It's affirmed by Joseph, applied to his brothers as well. And then the brothers have got to go do a hard thing. I mean, after the fear of their own hearts, realizing who Joseph is and the predicament that they're in, and there's no way to get out, verse 9 says, Hurry up, go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph. You mean the one that was dead? The brothers have to go confess to their father. And confession is a hard thing to do. Something that you must do, but it's a very hard thing. To do. God greatly desires to forgive sin. He desires to forgive the sin of the brothers, and you're going to see restoration next week or the week after. But the restoration doesn't come until the revelation comes. Restoration with the brothers come the revelation of who Joseph is, and the forgiveness comes from the father doesn't come until the brothers reveal what they've done and they do that through a confession. God can't forgive your sin until you own your sin and you must take it to the cross never to be seen again it's hard as we'll see next time God won't leave you without help just as the brothers have a plan that they're to follow to find the forgiveness of their father.